Welcome to Ship It, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and improving legacy systems. Alex Sims, a senior software engineer at James & James, an e-commerce fulfillment company, reached out to us about the Kaizen story of the third-party logistics platform that he has been involved with for several years now. The system delivered 16 million orders over 10 years and 4.5 million in the last year alone. All the numbers are going up and there's only so much that a single PHP monolith deployed as VM images can handle. So how do you even start thinking about the architectural improvements and inspire everyone involved to move towards better? I encourage you to look at the diagrams in the show notes, especially the 10-year roadmap. And if interested, ask Alex for the blog post follow-up. While today's episode was a good conversation starter, there is a lot that we didn't have time to cover. Huge thanks to Fastly for shipping our episodes super fast all around the world. Check them out at fastly.com. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. Sourcegraph is universal code search to let you move fast, even in big code bases. Here's CTO and co-founder Byung Lu explaining how Sourcegraph helps you to get into that ideal state of flow in coding. The ideal state of software development is really being in that state of flow. It's that state where all the relevant context and information that you need to build whatever feature or bug that you're focused on uh, building or fixing at the moment, that's all readily available. Now, the question is, how do you get into that state where, you know, you don't know anything about the code necessarily that you're going to modify? That's where Sourcegraph comes in. And so what you do with Sourcegraph is you you jump into Sourcegraph. It provides a single uh, portal into that universal code. You search for the string literal, the pattern, whatever it is you're looking for. You dive right into the, the specific part of code that you want to understand. And then you have all these code navigation capabilities, jump to definition, find references that work across repository boundaries that work without having to clone the code to your local machine and set up and mess around with editor config and, and all that. Everything is just designed to be seamless and to aid in that task of you know code spelunking or, or source diving. And once you've acquired that understanding, then you can hop back in your editor, dive right back into that flow state of, hey, all the information I need is readily accessible. Let me just focus on writing the code that implements the feature or fixes the bug that I'm working on. All right, learn more at sourcegraph.com and also check out their bi-monthly virtual series called DevTool Time, covering all things DevTools at sourcegraph.com slash devtooltime. We are going to ship in three, two, one. I was very excited when Alex reached out to me, telling me how inspirational some of the Kaizen episodes were for him and how he tried applying that principle of improving a little every day and working towards something better. And after a couple of months, he told me that that worked really well. So I wanted to find out more. So we have Alex here today to share with us that story, that Kaizen story. Welcome, Alex. It's great to be here. I've uh, really been enjoying listening to you ship it over the past few months uh, mm. since you launched it. And uh, one of the things I really found interesting at the start is just how many tools in the space that you, you've been covering and really been trying to apply some of those at the mm. company where I work for, James & James. Just to give a little bit of context and background around who I am and what I do. My name is Alex. 
I work for a company called James and James, which is a 4PL business. We essentially control every part of the supply chain for our customers. So we will own the integration with uh, multiple selling stores like Amazon, eBay. We'll pull all your orders in and we will pick, pack them, send them out, and also handle the returns process for any customers that want to send their orders back. As you can imagine, it's quite there's quite a lot that goes on behind the scenes, lots of moving parts, and lots of uh, systems that currently exist in a legacy application. And one of the things that we've been trying to do, at least over the last past year, is think about how we can break away from that monolithic application and start making the, the right incisions to pull certain services out into, I'd like to say, a microservice architecture, but I, I don't necessarily know if we need to fully drive one. Instead, I'd like to think of us as a service-oriented architecture where we have um, certain small or certain uh, boundaries of the business extrapolated mm. to services that augment the sort of core right. of the business. So one thing which really struck me, Alex, is that you're new to the company and new to the industry as well. And I'm very curious, how is that starting point for you? Because some of us have been doing this for 10, 15, 20 years, and we no longer have that fresh perspective, that fresh pair of eyes. You know, there's always like knowledge built on top of knowledge, on top of knowledge. And it's, I think it's different. But for you that joined this industry, was it a year ago, two years ago? So I've been with the company now for about four and a half years. The company's been around since 2010 and was originally written Symphony 1.4, so an old PHP right. application. And uh, there's some really long-standing developers on the team. You've got some that have been here for sort of over 10 years, some that have only been here for the last five or six. So I, I would say I'm more of one of the senior right. developers mm -hmm. within the team. But coming in from sort of university and having all these bright ideas and most people that I, that I graduated with went on to do greenfield projects i went into james and james because i was excited about the sort of business domain and the, and the challenges that they were solving but what came with that was legacy tech and sort of having to adjust my perspective and outlook on how you how you build mm -hmm. applications so so going in where i've been very used to sort of tdd and realizing that wasn't the thing that was really done because that version of the framework had a really awkward pipeline for, for writing tests. And there was just really yeah. nothing there to give new developers examples of what to do. We sort of went along and built software in a very waterfall way yeah. at the start. So we used to have uh, very long two-week cycles where we would then bundle up all of the code changes, which may be hundreds of files and thousands and thousands of lines of code. And every other Thursday, we'd sort of look at them, put a big PR together. All of the team, five developers would test it. We'd, we'd sign off on a Friday. Don't deploy yeah. on a Friday because, you know, you don't, want, you don't want to get called on the weekend. And then Monday morning, as long as we were happy mm -hmm. with our smoke test, we'd, we'd deploy. And that worked. It worked fine for uh, a few years, two years, I think. And it was only really when the, the pandemic hit, or maybe just before the pandemic hit, we'd started to shift to a more distributed mm -hmm. team and working from home a lot more. And that same release cadence didn't yeah. work for us anymore. We needed to change. And we uh, hired an agile consultant and uh, worked alongside him for a while. And after doing our first three or four sprints, it was 
really clear like the feedback you're giving of deploying multiple changes a day or, or a week and realizing you're not having to test every edge of production before you're you're satisfied with the mm. confidence of your build was great. I'm not sure if you want to interject with any other questions. If this was a game, I would say that you've started on the hard mode. So, you know, like easy, medium, hard. This was definitely hard because you went into a legacy project, which, by the way, doesn't mean a bad thing. It just means a lot of assumptions, a lot of learnings that you were not part of. And you have like the result, the end result of those learnings, and you have to make it work in a way that may have worked great in the first four or five years, but then things started changing. And you're right, once the pandemic hit, everything changed for everyone. So trying to understand how all these complicated systems, or even if there's one, like how they interconnect and how they work and why you do things in a certain way, that had to be rethought because all of a sudden, mm -hmm. you know, a lot more people are ordering things online. I'm sure the volume went up for you, like in those two years, so you're doing like a lot more business. And that was putting certain pressures uh, in terms of confidence, in terms of reliability, like a lot more was riding on those two weeks of changes and the disruption had been far more significant for the company. So getting it right, there was a pressure to get it right. So I'm very curious, how did that transition work for you from shipping every two weeks to I imagine shipping more often? I think I'll rewind the, the clock a little bit back to when I first started again sure. four or five years ago. And um, when I first started, we were still small enough that we could host pretty much everything on one machine. I think we even had a shared database server on that machine. Let me guess, FTP or rsync? I think prior to, yeah, I mean, back in the early days, there was definitely some some tinkering and prod, but we, we had a deployment pipeline, at least when I, when I joined. That was using FTP. Uh, yeah. Then, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we've, we've been using uh, DeployHQ ever since I've been there, and it's, it's worked great. But I, I, I think that SFTP's files over to the, mm -hmm. the production machines. I'd have to check our pipeline, but I'm pretty sure that's how it works. But yeah, we, I rewound yeah. the clock, didn't I? So I rewound the clock back to sort of like 2017 when we were on one, one server. And every year we sort of come to the November, December part of the year. And that's our peak. That's when our volume goes, mm -hmm. goes through the roof. As you can imagine, you got, you got Black Friday coming up. You've got Christmas coming up and everyone mm -hmm. is placing orders. And that's really when we start to stress test our system. You start looking at the amount of actions that are, are sitting in the queue. Are we falling behind? How many have we processed in, in the last sort of 10 minutes? And we've, we've got alerts set up that if any of those, if any of those queues start looking like we're going to fall into a half an hour or greater backlog, we start spamming messages to Slack to say, Hey, look at this. It's time to spin up some, some new workers so we can start clearing that queue. That journey has been quite interesting because when I first started, it was like, Everything's on fire, all hands on deck, developers get in there, we're spinning up servers from, from AMIs or whatever the alternative was in, in Rackspace, just some image that we've provisioned, putting new ones in, into the into the pools. And then once we've cleared the backlog and we, we're looking like we, we're settled, we would manually then tear those, those boxes down and take them out of the pool. And that worked great for years. But as you can imagine, it's reacting when you need to react. And over the last couple of years, Every time we've got to peak, because we've been focusing through the year on sort of trying to harden the system, so find any anywhere where there's really slow queries and optimize those, find any of the pages where it's being sort of greedy and, and running 
a query for every single object that you're trying to get rather than hydrating everything mm-hmm. in one go. We've optimized all of those. And then when we come around to peak, we're sort of seeing that we're not having to do as much of this firefighting. And the really good thing for us was because we'd had two or three peaks of aggressive growth, by the time we got to the pandemic, we actually found the opposite of what we thought was going to happen. The system just, it stood up and it managed to uh, get through. Of course, there were additional features that the fulfillment center needed to, to process the backlog of orders. But in terms of like system stability, everything mm-hmm. held up. And that was really exciting to see from, from our perspective. Okay. So at what point did you go from a single server to multiple servers? Did that happen, by the way? It did. I think it was within a few months after I joined the company, we split the database off onto its own server. And then I think we finally had, I think we, we'd always had web servers and then mm-hmm. worker servers that process all, all of the tasks. But I think when I joined shortly after in that first peak was when we started adding more and more of those nodes to the pool. Okay. And were you using something like Chef or Puppet or Terraform? Like, what did you have at the time to maybe not automate this, but at least make it easier? Everything was done, like, get shelling into the console and, and spinning, spinning everything up. I know back in 2018, I think, we at least started using Ansible to provision users on, okay. on new servers. And we, we still use that system today to, to provision users on service. These are the users like the developers that maybe SSH or the uh, system administrators? Yeah. So sort of recently, I dockerized our applications so that developers have an opportunity to, to work locally right. if they want to. That is a big step. Do you say recently? How recent was this, by the way? I wrote it probably about eight to nine months okay. ago. Okay. And that was two applications and then sort of set up a bunch of stuff locally with traffic. So you we get um, reverse mm-hmm. proxy. We've named uh, like local DNS to point to it. It's, it works really nice. But then everybody else that doesn't want to work locally, maybe the machine can't yeah. can't run run it. We have a remote environment. You have a user space for every everybody, and then just access the application through. Some that DNS. makes sense. Okay. Is there like a single remote environment that everyone uses, or yes. a single environment? Okay. And don't you find that people maybe trip? over each other's feet like no because in in that environment i think we, we've got some sort of wildcard certificate maybe so uh-huh. we'll have like developer initials dot and then the name of the application so all requests go through your user space to your your instance of the application oh, interesting okay okay and when it comes to the database or like do they provision like database which is like just for their application like how does that work how does the data work there's always issues with the data right there's the data gravity yeah so we use a obfuscated version of a backup mm-hmm. and then developers work off that and it kind of works but the thing that's really awkward with it is now that we've actually so to rewind again a little bit one of the contractors that we've just bought on he's written support for a php unit in mm-hmm. this legacy Symphony 1.4 application. So we've started to introduce unit tests to that. Problem being, because we work off a backup, it's really heavy if you then want to try and run tests against that. And because the data is always changing, you can't be certain of the state. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing now is inside the, the Docker application, adding a version of Maria D, oh, sorry, adding a MariaDB container that comes empty. And then we run the build script for the schema to provision the database so we can start running tests against it. 
haven't yet got any seeds because as you can imagine in a, in a legacy application with a legacy uh, monolithic database, we have hundreds of tables and we can't easily create seed data for it at this point. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're trying to sort of change the way we think about our tests and just make the tests see the, the data they care about so we can start seeing some green green flags. <laughs> I really like this real world challenge because it's real. So first of all, it, I, this thing is happening. It's been it's been there for like many years and you have to figure out a way of improving it little by little while not breaking workflows that have been there for years. Yes. That people depend on and they trust and they know that it will work. So in this sea of technology and, you know, workflows and, and people, what would you say was the biggest challenge? I think this is, this is really interesting because this brings me on to one of the biggest rewrites that we've probably done, in the, at least in the time that I've been at the company. And it was probably mm-hmm. our most critical piece of business logic. And it's essentially, it's when I uh, want to get a set of orders given to me as a, as a picker in the warehouse, I want to find the most efficient pick route and the most similar orders that I can get on that pick route to fill up my trolley. Now, we had a legacy process that would manage this for years. And myself and another developer that I work with were tasked with rewriting it because it was it was slow. Uh, it was slow to the order of sometimes it would take up to a minute and a half to get a, a list of orders back. And they weren't always the most... Uh, they weren't always closest in proximity or you had dissimilar orders on a trolley. So when the packer got it, they'd struggle to, mm. they'd be less efficient because they wouldn't know what packaging do I use for this order? What do I use for that order? So this project landed on our desk and we sort of looked at what can we rewrite in? We've been talking about services for a while. This seems like a good opportunity to make a service for this. And I think this also sort of highlighted my naivety as a new developer coming out of university. I was like, right, I'm going to go pick the latest PHP framework that I can, because I was sort of bounded to PHP at this point. We were, we were a PHP yeah. house. And at the time, we weren't looking at other languages. We wanted everyone on the team to be able to understand it. Um, yeah. So it was pick a PHP framework. And I went with uh, Lumen at the time because we had some really good benchmarks for API-driven applications. And this was going to be a purely API-driven service. So selected Lumen and then got the sort of base application spun up. It's like, great, we, we, we can see the sort of hello world route. Let's start putting code into it. And we looked at the logic for capture and was like, oh, there's thousands and thousands of lines. So before we can even do anything, we have to port over all of the lines, pull them apart because there's not single responsibility for every method. So we, we try to extrapolate those into, into sensible names and uh, put unit tests behind everything. And it was working great. We, we managed to port over everything in, I think, two months, three months to get it ported and tested. But mm-hmm. then we had to implement the new algorithms over the top to sort of make it more efficient. So we applied, we applied those probably about another two or three months later, up to the point where we got to our peak deadline of, yeah, we need to switch this on for peak because it's going to be the thing that gets us through. As you can imagine, sort of running that close to the deadline and knowing you're operating in your most busy time of year, it's how do I have the confidence now to switch this on where we don't have the space to, to deal with potentially an op- not an operational disaster because we were confident it would still work, but we're not 100% confident in that feature. So we, we left it off the peak. We did some testing after, but what we ended up doing is spinning up another node in production. And 
I guess you could sort of say it was like a canary release because it's this one server that's running in production and it's running on a specific branch. And those that portion of users started having all of their requests for capture directed through to the new API. Fortunately, we, we actually had a really good response from it. I think we got the time down to anywhere between five and 10 seconds. Yeah, that's a huge improvement, at least yeah. like an order of magnitude faster. Yeah, that That's when you have a 10x, you can feel it. Yeah, and it felt great going out into the warehouse and not seeing loads of people sort of standing around while they're waiting to capture because as you're capturing, the next person can't capture because you have to put it as a mutually exclusive lock over all orders on a specific level and you don't want to oversubscribe stock to more than one operator at a time. So because of that, there was there could be huge bottlenecks in the past, which we mm-hmm. sort of now eradicated a lot. So it felt it felt really good. But what happened over time is because we didn't really have anyone in the role I'm in now, which is more of a solutions architecture role, that boundary sort of got blurred. And mm-hmm. it was like, oh, let's start writing a new service that, that we can that we can pull in. And instead of really sort of thinking about what that boundary is and what goes into that, what go, what goes into that um, Lumen application, we just started writing more code there. And after a while, I just sort of stepped back and thought, we're actually building another monolith as we're breaking away from the monolith. And mm. although it feels like the right choice now, three years down the line, we're going to say, now we've got two monoliths. Right. And, <laughs> and what do you do at that point, <laughs> right? You, you've now got yeah. two legacy applications that you need to upgrade to the latest version. But if you're not spending time upgrading those versions, you're going to have a big, big headache and a lot of technical debt. Yeah. What's up, shippers? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software, get actionable real-time insights into the quality and the performance of your web and mobile apps. Raygun delivers modern tooling for customer-centric teams, error monitoring and crash reporting, ship better quality software faster, get code-level insights into the health of your application in real-time, and start fixing the errors impacting your end-user's experience. You get real user monitoring, quickly identify and resolve front-end performance issues impacting real users in real time, understand exactly how your application performed for every user session and page load. And of course, application performance monitoring gain unrivaled visibility into server-side performance, unlock detailed code-level insights into the root cause of performance issues so you can take action and deliver lightning-fast digital experiences. The next step is to head to raygun.com and start your free 14-day trial, no credit card required. Join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every single day. Again, raygun.com. So from what I'm hearing, it was the domain and how to break down the domain into these discrete units. That was the most challenging part because you had a real operation that you could not affect, like the the impact of getting it wrong was very high and the risk of getting it wrong was very high. So you're mitigating that via this canary to inform you whether is this going in the right direction. So I imagine that you were routing part of the traffic through that just to see, yes. you know, how it would behave. 
and it, it behaved well at like a small scale traffic. So that I understand how that drove you into this role of a more like a solutions architect, which you're missing that like high level perspective. So someone has to fill that void so that, you know, it, it unblocks a bunch of things. So did that work out the way you were expecting it to work out? You stepping in this role and having that high level perspective? So in this new role, I've only been doing it for the last sort of six months. But the thing that I really wanted to, the, the value that I really wanted to gain from it is look at some of the upcoming problems that we've got and think, do we really need to put this into the monolith? Mm. Or can we start thinking about how we break this out of the monolith and put it into its own service? And one of the things that we've worked on recently is we want to get a better idea of the productivity of, of our warehouses. Mm. And every single thing that happens inside of our operation records something called a movement. Mm. And a movement represents either stock into the warehouse, an internal transfer between locations, or an outbound transfer, say, to an order, and then uh, out, to a, out to a customer. And what we could have done is added events inside of our Simply One for application and process those in that application, aggregated them together and push them out to a, th a third party that we're using to do some analysis. What we've done instead is introduced a, a Kafka layer where every single every single movement that happens in the warehouse gets replayed to Kafka through something called CDC. And then once it's in Kafka, as many applications as you want can consume those movements and then reason with them however they want to hydrate it into a different data set. And then that's what we're currently feeding off to our third-party provider. Mm. I've actually got a diagram I wouldn't mind. Yes, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, that sounds great. I think it might help illustrate that point. <laughs> okay. So there were these architectural changes that, that needed to happen, but you're also mentioning quite a bit about confidence. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, how are you gaining confidence in all these changes to know whether you're going in the right direction, to know whether the system keeps remaining stable, responsive? How are you tracking that so that you know whether you're going in the right direction? So in the last year, maybe, I don't know if he's been here with us for 18 months yet, but sort of in, in that range, We've had two QAs join, join the team. They've been doing a great job using something called Robot to write an automated test pack for our legacy application. Mm -hmm. So any defects that we find at the point of doing our dev development testing, they get rolled up into tests in that, in that automated test pack. Obviously, we're, we're then trying to write as many unit tests as possible in development, especially in the in the Lumen application, to give us confidence in, in what we're shipping at, at the sort of back-end level. Mm -hmm. That's been going really well. So at the point of deployment, we verify that those tests are all going green. And if they are, we, we merge to main. But in our legacy application, as I mentioned earlier, the, the unit tests are sort of a, a new addition and there's only a, a small handful of them. So we're really relying on what the robot framework is driving to give us confidence in, mm -hmm. in what we're shipping. There's also still that whole manual phase where we do have the QAs do some manual smoke testing before we release any features. And any major features that touch core aspects of the business, we will put onto a beta node and like just direct a small portion of traffic yeah. to that node. And that seems to work pretty well for us. So when it comes to understanding what happens in production, knowing when certain responses are slow or they're failing, or knowing when, for example, a deployment failed, do you track those things at yeah. all? Ever since I've been at the company, we've used Datadog. 
Mm-hmm. Only after over the last sort of 12 months have we become more advanced users. We've installed APM so we can get some really nice insights to how our, how PHP is behaving mm-hmm. and also can see everything that's at the uh, database level to see where slow queries are, pick those out, optimize them as needed. And it's been so useful to sort of see someone in the warehouse might report, oh, uh, this page is going slow. And you, you go look at, at the APM and can see exactly what requests were going slow, what was yeah. sent, what may have caused it, what correlates with, with with your findings and see if it's actually a problem in the code or is it one of the, the nodes going slow and needs a restart or something. Mm-hmm. I think I mentioned to you, we're thinking about moving to Kubernetes in the future, but right now we, we're still, I think, six or seven web nodes behind a load balancer that running on EC2 mm-hmm. with a similar amount of task nodes running on EC2. We still have to manually apply patches and restart those boxes occasionally, and there's still some manual work there. Okay, so after my conversation with with, with Kelsey, that was episode 44, the first question which I ask is not about automation, but about documentation. And it's something, you know, like (laughs) top of my mind. So how well documented is your process in terms of deployments, in terms of what runs where, how to do things? I would say we're... We're not as good as we could be, mm-hmm. but we've made a we've made a good start. So I was listening to the podcast with, with Kelsey the other day, and I thought he's made some really good points here because it completely discredited what I just proposed to the team. The whole thing of can you prove it in principle first? Give me the human instructions of how I would provision this myself, yeah. which is what we currently have. We have a have a documentation in the wiki to say if I want to go create a new server to run this application. Here's a list of the packages that you need. Here's all of the correct permissions that you need. And that's actually what I used to then go and write the Docker file for the application. But what I then said to the team was, I don't think we need this documentation anymore. (laughs) I think the Docker file is living proof of the documentation, but it's the wrong way to think about it. And that that really resonated with me. And I've sort of gone back to, you you need both. I think it's it's healthy to have both. So definitely the documentation is your source of truth for sure. And then any automation that you add on top of that. And this is something which I myself am changing my approach because I was always automate, 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 but not enough document because I was thinking, well, the automation is the documentation, isn't it? Apparently not. (laughs) And I can definitely see that because I was catching myself having to rewrite these huge things and I rewrite them by looking at the automation, which is the wrong way to go about it. So if you have good documentation, it's very easy to write the new automation without looking at what you had previously, because you will make those jumps every now and then. And if you don't have documentation, well, good luck, you know, figuring out your chef or your puppet or your make file or whatever you may have, your scripts, you know, whatever the case may be. And by the way, there's no right or wrong. It's like Terraform, whatever, you know, all things work for your context, because otherwise you wouldn't be using them, I suppose, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's, that's, that's the test. Like, does it work for you? Great. So then you're using the right thing. It's really interesting that you bring up Kubernetes because that would be my first, or it used to be my first go-to, to just use Kubernetes. And in some cases, and you, you kind of feel it when, okay, I think we may need this like container orchestrator and, you know, scheduler and like uh, scaling up and scaling down. But there's a lot of knowledge that you need to have. And that's why I say Mm -hmm. my perspective is having a bunch of years of experience using it. But your perspective is this thing is new. I don't know, like, how will this fail? And we've been doing this for like 10 years now, four or five years on my watch, and we've been fine. So replacing that with something so 
fundamentally different is a very big proposal, right? It's like, a, it's, it's a big, like, how, how do you even approach this? I'm glad that you have documentation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's also the thing that, that worries me because obviously we've, we've been doing this for 10 years now. We've been absolutely fine provisioning images, spinning, uh, spinning up more nodes and adding them to the pool as we need, yeah. scaling down on demand. I mean, obviously Amazon's got auto scaling groups and things that we could leverage to, to get a lot of that out of them. But one of the problems that I see is if we truly start going towards a service oriented architecture mm-hmm. where we have more than the current, even just the current two applications that we have now, as you add a third or a fourth, fourth service, think the, the water starts to get muddied. How would you replicate this environment somewhere else? Yeah. How can I run this, like, especially in the context of Docker, how can I run this um, locally and mm-hmm. actually get it up and running? If I have everything in Kubernetes to say, I just want to start this cluster and here's uh, here's how you start all the services and just go and it's all automated. Someone could just pick it up and run a script and it's all done. Yeah. But if um, if you don't have that layer, it becomes a lot harder to migrate. Mm-hmm. However, that being said, one of the interesting things that I've sort of been learning as I've transitioned into this role is every decision you make comes with a cost, mm-hmm. whether that be a cost to sort of actually do the migration or a cost to maintain what you've migrated, you need to say, if we do Kubernetes, it's going to offer these advantages in the future, but it's going to come at the cost of maybe hiring a hiring someone to actually set it up for us in the first point and do some training. It's also going to cost uh, upskilling ops engineers to, to understand it. Whereas if we carry on as we are, the risk is the cost of migration is now six months instead of a month or four weeks to, to move. It's what, what do you, what, what's better for the business and, and what yeah. gives, what gives the results that you, that you need? And it's hard to answer that question sometimes. Yeah. And I think that's why when you're like on a trajectory of improvement and your focus is how do we get better at this, whatever this means, it's so contextual because you instinctively know which small step gives you the biggest win. And then you take that step and it doesn't matter how you label it, whether it's Kubernetes or something else. Is this the smallest investment of effort that yields the highest benefits and has the maybe exactly. lowest trade-offs? And by the way, some of the, those things aren't as black and white and they're not obvious, but you have to try it. And then you kind of say, okay, this kind of feels right. And it's your experience. It's your gut instinct. It has to do with the people that you work with. Uh, some of them will know things that you don't. And I think that's really fascinating how people come together or don't when it comes to solving those problems. Because when you have teams that work together and each of you shares their unique perspective, amazing things happen. So how do you encourage your team to do that so that you together are taking the steps in the right direction and you don't have one of you pulling towards Kubernetes, someone else pulling towards, for example, Knative or let's go serverless, someone else saying, no, 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 I have like this, it's Zend. Have you heard of Zend? It's amazing. It's going to revolutionize the world of Zend framework. <laughs> I remember that PHP framework. That was a very interesting one. And uh, there was CodeIgniter, CodeIgniter, something oh, yeah, like that. I remember that. I had my fair share of like, I think two years and with PHP frameworks, and then I discovered Ruby on Rails. So that's what happened. <laughs> and that was like 15 <laughs> years ago or 10 years ago, however long. But still, the point being that there's all these frameworks that we use, there's all these tools that we use, but the focus is the people, it's the processes, it's the things that enable us to get on with work with the least amount of 
frustration, right? We need to enjoy. Like, like if we're not enjoying this, what are we even doing? Being miserable? You have to enjoy your day-to-day to get the most out, out of yourself and not even just yourself, but your team. Yeah. And one of the things that I sort of learned over the last few years from someone that sort of came on going, everything needs to be shiny. We need to be using this technology and this yeah. technology and coming into a team with, I'd say, more seasoned developers that have sort of weathered the storm of the shiny and sort of said, we've got this, we've got this tech. Mm. It's done us, it's done us solid for five years at that point. We don't necessarily need to upgrade as long as we're following the upgrade paths to sort of say, I'm on PHP five point something and it's now end of life and I'm, I'm now bumping up to the next version to make sure that we, we've not got any vulnerabilities in, in our code from the, at the language level. Then I think we're, we're doing the right thing and we, we can carry on pushing ahead with it. There needs to be a real, a real reason to break away from doing something the way that you're doing it mm-hmm. in order to justify that cost of adding that extra complexity to the stack. Because every time, like now we add a service, we're adding additional complexity that someone needs to understand. Like if I were to walk away, mm-hmm. who else on the team can pick that up and understand it? And one of the important parts in my role now is everything that we're building is being thoroughly documented mm-hmm. from the perspective of architectural diagrams. This is how different parts of the, the system interact with one another. This is the contract that this service has exposed to the rest mm-hmm. of these services. Once you understand that part, everything else just becomes black box. And if I were to walk away, then someone should be able to come in, reference the documentation and go, okay, I can see how we push messages to this service now. This is, this is the flow. Mm-hmm. Back to your original sort of point on um, how do you sort of get other people excited and sort of make them want to, to learn the new things. I think that's a hard one. I think, like I said earlier, when I came in, I was trying to hard sell like React and we need to use Laravel. We need to get rid of Symphony 1.4. Coming in and just saying those things without really being able to say, this is why was a really hard sell. But over time, it's been, we've sort of seen that maintaining Symphony 1.4 is hard, especially when we jump from uh, PHP 5 to PHP 7.2 as a friends of PHP on, on GitHub. And they have been maintaining that Symphony 1.4 fork for years and upgrading it with every major version of PHP and minor version of PHP that comes out. But that's only going to happen for so long. If anyone decides to stop maintaining that, then we're in hot water when PHP 7 goes under life and we go to 8. I think we're already looking at how we can how we can start moving to 8. And then fortunately, I believe that fork is still maintaining mm-hmm. that version. But yeah, then there comes a point where you have to pull off the blaster and start thinking about how do you move to something that's going to be sustainable. How has your perspective changed when it comes to chasing the shiny, chasing, you know, the one which is, you know, popular today? Yeah, I still do a lot of additional work outside of work definitely think I'm a bit of a tech evangelist. I'm always trying the new tools. But I think after being a developer for several years, everyone's solving the same problems just with a nicer bit of syntactic sugar around it. Mm. And over time, you you sort of realize these things are nice and they can do some additional cool things, but are they doing it to an order of magnitude better than what you're you're currently using? And if the answer is no, then there's big alarm bells of, do I want to integrate this into a project that's mature and that nobody's going to understand that it's going to come with mm. a, a training cost. A lot of the time, the answer is is no. Mm. What I tend to look at now is with the new services that I built uh, recently, it was PHP is really good for serving web requests and 
sort of doing some messaging stuff. But we've now got a really high throughput service that needs to sort of be a long-lived consumer of messages and then processing those messages. And I thought, well, Node.js off the bat is screaming out at me because it's just sort of, it's built for sort of handling lots of messages at once and processing them. And once I started doing a PHP prototype of the same service, I think it took me two or three days to make the same progress that I'd made with Node in a day. And I think that sort of just harks back to using the right tool for the job. Yeah, I'm sure someone's going to be listening and thinking, no, it can def- PHP can definitely do that really easily. But then that was a maybe a gap in my knowledge and I knew Node better and nobody on the team had the experience of, oh, how do you process Kafka messages with PHP? Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, I know how to use this and here's a, here's a concept and here's how it works and I've proved it works, let's put it into production. Right. If I rewind a little bit more, that's my part when I talk about the black box, is if you scope your services narrowly enough, as long as I'm conforming to that contract, if someone comes along and says, no, actually, we can use PHP to process Kafka and we'll still get a similar or the same throughput, and it makes more sense because the rest of the team, it's their primary language. If your service is narrowly scoped, you can rewrite that service in PHP, scrap and burn the new Node.js one and just drop the PHP one as, as, a, as a replacement. And that's where having those, having those uh, architectural diagrams, I think, really helps people come in and sort of understand, right, if I was to rebuild this in PHP and get rid of the Node variant, this is what I need to do. Is this code somewhere in the open available for people Currently, to see? Currently, we're closed source. I don't know if we'll ever go open source or if, if it's something we'll consider. That's something I have to check check with, but currently no. Okay. So the reason why I ask whether the code is is uh, is in the open, and by the way, it can have a closed source license but still be, you know, available, is that's where you get like people maybe being able to look at it and maybe offer suggestions. I mean, I'm not going to sell you on the benefits of, of open source because I'm sure you know them already. Yeah. But if there is a way that you can share the problems that you have in a way that maybe helps others. I imagine that others would return the favor in that you may be doing something interesting and they say, you know what, this is cool. I'm going to help because this is cool and it helps on so many fronts. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one point. The other point which I, was, which, which I was thinking about was when it comes to changing the paradigm that you currently have. So you have applications, you have frameworks, maybe microservices, but what about something like serverless, where you have these functions yeah. where you get to model your business logic in ways that the whole platform and the whole like ecosystem supports it? And I'm not sure whether serverless, again, yeah, I wouldn't I choose it just like for this reason, but doing certain things, if you try to mention, you try to Node.js, if you try the same thing with some serverless primitives, mm-hmm. How far do you get where you have eventing out of the box, you have serving out of the box, and these like concepts that are higher level concepts and building things is easier because you don't have to worry, well, which PHP version am I using or which framework I'm using? That that doesn't exist. You know, you have like the the components that you wire together and the components are messaging primitives or serving primitives rather than this class or this function. So here's our two legacy applications. Everything mm-hmm. gets written to our current primary MariaDB node. Yes. We've got a couple of uh, replicas of this, but that's not too important. Amazon DMS is the CDC piece, which will then replay any of the 
like tables that we subscribe to to Kafka, mm-hmm. and then we've got our long-lived Docker consumers running on an EC2 instance, mm-hmm. and they do some synchronization with Redis running in Elasticache, which will sort of tell us when a picklist starts and when a picklist ends, right. and then at the point of an end event happening, it will publish to another topic in Kafka. Right. You were just talking about the serverless part, and we then invoke some Lambda functions to actually do the hydration of, of mm. that data and then save those to a S3 bucket, which then invokes another Lambda function and publishes it to our um, partner, which does our analysis on, on that data. We then ingest all of that S3 data into Athena mm. so we can visualize and query it in QuickSight to do some dashboards off of this uh, sort of stream stream data that we're building. And that's sort of how that all comes together. I hope that makes a bit more sense now. It does actually. So is this something that you have now or something that you're working towards? No, I, we switched it on uh, a month and a half ago and, and it, it has ran without any issues. We've done thousands and thousands of, of pick lists. And um, one really cool thing is last night, or no, the night before last, we put, applied some security patches to the EC2 box. Mm-hmm. I had forgot to restart the Docker container. So we got a message from our partner in the morning saying, we've not received any data from you in the last sort of right. 10 hours. It's like, whoa, okay, what's what's going on? And restarted the Docker container and there was no gaps. There was no data loss. It just replayed all the messages start to finish and we published every file that was missed. And I was like, this is exactly where I've been wanting to work toward having Amazing. fault-tolerant, failover, self-healing services that can, it was great. That to me sounds like a resilient system that was built in from the start so when failure does happen because guess what it will and if you think it won't well i don't think you've been doing it long enough to know <laughs> that you know to have not experienced that so how are you going to build this resilience in the cdns fail they do it happens maybe once every five years but they do fail things systems that you think will never fail they will eventually and okay they may it may happen infrequently and you may not need to design for that or build for that but if it does fail what is the worst thing that can happen or what is your plan? Like the data gets wiped. Are you going to not have backups because you think data will never get wiped? So have something and think about that. Because like in your case, you know, like it's like a very simple thing, like a security patch and things were not restarted. We make mistakes all the time. And if your systems can't tolerate any mistakes, then I think that's the first step. Like try and, you know, think like make a few mistakes. Like you said, no, yeah. by my like 100% uptime. Well, you know what? <laughs> I know if you have a single server, I mean, I have, for example, servers, which I'm using, which have like five, six years of uptime and that's yeah. okay, but it can go any down any time and I'll, I'll be fine. I don't trust that you'll never go down and it doesn't give me like a warm feeling. It's like every year it's like, okay, this thing will go down at some point. <laughs> it's closer and closer to the, to the day that it yeah, goes down. I, I had five, six years of uptime and then uh, it went. Yeah, there you go. It just happens, you know, it's here. Like the, <laughs> the, longer you, the longer you wait, so I was going to say like the longer, the longer the clock ticks, the more yeah. likely it is that you will have a, like you're going closer and closer to, to a downtime. And are you, are you okay with that? And you may be okay, but you know, some systems can't tolerate that. So how are you going to design your system exactly. to cope with that downtime when it eventually comes. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
This episode is brought to you by Chronosphere. When it comes to true cloud native monitoring, metrics are the backbone of your observability implementation. Teams need reliable, scalable, and efficient metrics so they can know about issues well before their customers do. Companies born in the cloud native era often start with Prometheus for monitoring, which is obviously an amazing piece of software, but they quickly push it to its limits and they often outgrow it. They run into issues with siloed data, missing long-term storage, and wasted engineering time firefighting the monitoring system versus delivering their application with confidence. They describe the system as a house of cards, where a single developer's seemingly benign change can overload the whole monitoring system, or they say they're flying blind because they pride themselves on making data-driven decisions, but losing visibility means they lose this competitive edge. Ryan Sokol, VP of Engineering at DoorDash, has this to say about Chronosphere, quote, the visibility and control that Chronosphere's platform gives us to manage our observability data and costs are a game changer, especially with our unprecedented growth, end quote. Chronosphere is the observability platform for cloud native teams operating at scale. Learn more and get a demo at chronosphere.io. Again, chronosphere.io. I'm very curious, how does your deployment pipeline look like? And when I say deployment pipeline, I don't mean just the actual pipeline, but from committing code, what happens between the commit and the code going out in production? Yeah, so right now I would say it's still very basic. We sort of ensure our tests are passing as a, as a, pre, as a pre-deployment phase. It's not as part of our pipeline. Mm-hmm. Once we deploy, HQ bundles everything up and just pushes it out to all the servers. And then we get notified in Slack that a new version has sort of gone okay. live. And then we'll do our, our smoke tests. So it's, it's still a very basic pipeline at the moment. That's for our, our main application. One of the things we're working towards is trying to get our robot framework to run before we do the deployment. Because I think the way the QA engineer phrased it was, it's like reading yesterday's newspaper yeah. today because we will run the, the smoke test, or sorry, we'll run the automated framework after the deployment's happened because it takes so long. And we want that immediate feedback in production of something's mm-hmm. gone out and we're, we're able to use it. We don't want to be blocked for 20, 30 right. minutes. So that, that's still really basic. However, some of the newer services that we've got are slightly more complicated. They're not, they're not, they're not massively complicated pipelines. Like um, our Lambda ones, it will grab the source, run it through a compile phase in a make file, run the tests against it. If that succeeds, it builds the uh, final like image and then pushes that art- artifact to image registry. And then that gets deployed to, gets deployed to our, our Lambda. How does that get deployed to Lambda or what deploys it to Lambda? Jenkins. We've got the Jenkins uh, pipeline that. So does the Jenkins pipeline also run the image building and the testing and all that? Yes, okay. it does everything. And does the code go to GitHub or somewhere else? Yes, goes, everything goes to GitHub. And then at the point of merging to main, that's when the pipelines get triggered. Okay, so you don't trigger pipelines on branches? Not currently. I think that's something we'd want to do. So running tests against branches just to ensure that before we merge, we're fully confident both from yeah. a, I'm the developer, I'm happy, but also, yeah, you've definitely not missed anything from, from the tests. Yeah, that's, that's where I want to get to. One thing I've got set up Locally, I use Husky to basically run my own pipeline before I push every commit. So mm. I can commit as much as I want locally, but at the point of pushing, if I'm working on a Node project, it will like compile on my do compile TypeScript, 
and then it will run all the unit tests. And if anything's failing, it will provoke me from pushing. Same mm -hmm. with PHP. If I if I try to push and something's broken, it's going to scream at me and say, no, you can't do that. But that's a, currently an optional workflow that our developers can opt into. Right. Do you use GitHub Actions by any chance? Not yet. It's something I've been exploring in, in side projects. Um, okay. I've also sort of been exploring what's it, the code spaces a bit, but we're not we're not there in James and James yet. So Jenkins, I'm assuming it's polling the GitHub repository. <clears throat> so you have a Jenkins. Where is that running by? Any, I'm I'm just curious. I think we might just have a, a server that's that's running that. Uh, I'd have to check with our ops guy. Yeah. So on EC2 because I, I know that um, you're, you're running on on AWS. You mentioned that a couple of times, like all the Lambda stuff. So it's 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 all AWS. Do you use anything else other than AWS? So we still have, we've migrated almost everything now from Rackspace. We okay. were with them, with them for years. We have one application running over there. It's just a really basic React application, which we can probably actually put into S3. Mm -hmm. it makes more sense. And then we've moved all of our assets over to you. That was a challenge in itself, migrating what about Two and a half, not two and a half terabytes. How much was it? Yeah, two and a half terabytes of assets from Rackspace to AWS in a, in a weekend. That was an interesting I think that move. in itself is like another episode, or at least like a blog post worth reading, because that sounds yeah. that sounds amazing. I remember us touching up on that last time when we when we I spoke. Think we did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So did did you? I think did I ask about the blog post if you have one at the time? Yeah, we we, we haven't yet. I mean, obviously everything going on right now. It's been yeah, a bit crazy. I've been wanting to start a blog, but that's. That's down the road a little bit. I've got two posts that I want to talk about, one being the migration piece and one being the, the screenshot I just shared with you. Yeah. I'll make sure to, uh, if you can share it, I, I'll make sure to put it in the show notes. That sounds awesome. like, I really like it, by the way. I think if listeners listen to us talking about the diagram, if it's when it's in the show notes, it makes sense to look yeah. at it as you talk about it. But it looks like a lot of the time I'm just looking at the shape of things and most of the times I know if the shape looks right, whether it's like some text or whether it's like a diagram, it's little things like, for example, arrows going in a single direction, arrows yeah. crisscrossing them, you know, like too much text or too little text or like not enough, a certain type of text. So it's those sorts of things like heuristics, which I apply to realize like, is this something interesting or not? Or like, do I want to find out more about it? And I definitely have to say, like, your diagram looked very interesting, just like oh, from thanks. the basic shape of it, you know, like things things were logical and kind of make sense. I was curious to find out more about like the various components. We'll make sure to put it in the show notes. So you push to GitHub, Jenkins pulls it down, runs all these things, and then it deploys to a bunch of targets, whether it's S3, whether it's an image registry, whether it's maybe a server, I imagine, maybe SSHing and performing things there. Again, I'm, I'm imagining, I'm guessing mm -hmm. here. How often do you merge into main? So from our legacy application, it depends on the time of year and it depends what we're working mm -hmm. on. If we've broken a ticket down into multiple deliverables that can actually go out to production, mm -hmm. we can merge several times a day. Right. If we've got a larger project that's going to disrupt something, because we don't currently have like proper feature flagging, we mm -hmm. have our own sort of flag system that we built years and years ago. And it's like, if this is enabled, then show this page, mm. which kind of works. But if something like launch darkly, you get the feedback of, hey, this switch has been hanging around for a while and hasn't been turned on. You should probably remove it. Yeah. We don't have that visibility. So we tried to stick away from adding lots and lots of switches in the code base. Mm -hmm. but sorry, that's, that's my point. If we're building a larger disruptive feature, what we tend to do is accrue a trunk and that trunk has main merge into it multiple times mm -hmm. a week, and then we will deploy that as of when it's ready. 
So it totally depends on the scope of the change. Hot fixes and small improvements we can deliver multiple times a day. Larger projects may be on a, on a bi-weekly cadence or maybe a monthly cadence. I see. Okay. And don't you find when you deploy less often that things tend to go wrong? Yes, definitely. Every <laughs> time we deploy something that's that's larger in, in scope, I think we put a lot more eyes on it. We'll, we'll sort of hark back to our waterfall days of everyone jump on board and we'll open a spreadsheet and we'll record defects and then realize, oh, they're, they're existing defects, but some of them may be newly in introduced and mm -hmm. it takes a lot longer to deploy the friction between like the whole team and getting something to uh, getting something to main it's a lot higher whereas when we can just release little and often if there is an issue one it's easier to say oh it could be this change yeah. and two it's easier to sort of roll things back without removing loads of new features that are perfectly fine from the operational staff and and our clients yeah that makes that makes sense and it definitely I would say it confirms my bias, but I think there is like a half truth there, at least a half truth there, because that's my experience as well. And when you deploy more frequently, small changes, it's much easier to basically check yourself and then check whether you're going in the right direction, see the things that you may have missed because it's so easy to miss them and you will absolutely miss them. So how do you build a process in which you can push small changes constantly, ship small changes constantly and you know verify that it works. Or if it doesn't work, okay, let me know. What didn't it work? So when it comes to future improvements, what are you thinking in the next three to six months? What are the big ticket items that you would like to spend time on improving? So I would really like to see us actually using at least Docker in production. We've been talking about it for a while. We haven't made the leap to it yet. One thing that we want to do to really prove that Docker can give us some reward in production mm -hmm. is to start using it for UAT environments to sort of say, hey, stakeholder, here's the feature you've requested at this at this URL, and everything's running in Docker. And at the point that we're happy to close it, happy to say, oh, that's now merged to main, that gets torn down. I would love a pipeline where as soon as a PR leaves draft status, it automatically spins up a Docker container in the cloud, registers something in Route 53, gives it a, a nice URL, and then we can paste that over to our stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And at the point of merging, then it tears everything down automatically. I think that would be fantastic. And that's where I'd really like us to get mm. to. I may just have something for you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's talk about this because this is really interesting. I mean, so many people that I talk to want exactly this, like a really simple thing, which is yeah. exactly like you described. Some documentation, please. And like, let's some, like some common understanding of how this thing works. But... What you've described, I think it's 80% what the majority that I talk to want when it comes to previews. Okay. Just give me a URL. It's, it's like my app. It's my code. It's easier to do if you use services like, for example, Netlify or Vercel or something like that, where you can have preview environments very, very easily. If you're using a pass, it also helps a lot, like Fly. And that was one thing which I wanted to do, but obviously we ended up doing something else, you know, like the plan versus reality, what you want yeah. versus what happens. <laughs> But I still think there's like a lot of value in, in, in having that, in that every branch gets a preview environment. And in this case, it's not a static website. It's a bit more complicated. So how do you set it up and you tear it down? And I'm sure things like these exist, but I haven't seen one that works well yet. Again, I may not have looked very hard and very far. It is something which I definitely want to work 
with other people to solve because I can see the value of it. So yeah, let's talk about that some more. Okay. Yes, that's great. What would you say is the most important takeaway from our conversation as we're wrapping yeah, up? Yeah, so I think for me, it would be if you're working on a, on a monolithic application and you're struggling to sort of see the light of where you want to break away and start doing something new, it'd be to every, every change request that comes through, sort of try and identify, is this the one where we could think about experimenting or at least releasing maybe two in parallel that, that do the same thing? Is it, is it small enough that I can get another service out there that delivers exactly what I want? Mm. At the start for us, it was, a, it was a large upfront cost, but now every new service that we're putting out there has a small operational cost. Because as soon as you get that layer in place that lets you push messages that are happening in your legacy database to other services, I'd say it gives us superpowers. We can we can now really start thinking about building whatever we want off of our old legacy data as it's getting played through the system. Alex, I'm really excited about your journey. Thank you very much for sharing it with us. I'm very curious to see how you continue and what happens next. By the sounds of it, you have all the right ingredients. You know, you're like going in the right direction. You're discovering the right things. And you seem to have a great team that supports you and want to, you know, help you get there. And that makes a huge difference if, you know, you have buy-in from those that you work with. So that's great. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. This has been great. And I'm looking forward to having you again when you yeah. are like, like your like next milestone. I'm really excited. Thanks for having me. I look forward to the next one. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Ship It. Check out our other podcasts for developers at changelog.com slash master. You can connect with like-minded developers from all over the world by changelog.com slash community. Thank you Fastly for the worldwide low-latency changelog.com. Our listeners love those blazing fast MP3s. Your beats are awesome, Breakmaster Cylinder. That's it for this week. See you all next week. As for the last thing, today's episode was a pre-Kaizen warm-up. Next week, we have the fifth Kaizen, and this one will be the biggest one yet. Many things came together, and I want to say thank you to all that contributed, but especially Jared, Kelsey, Kurt, and Mark. Thank you.